Welcome to the podcast, The Other Woman and the Wife, where we discuss why infidelity exists and what we can learn from it. Today, I'm joined by Mal. He is known as the Bible School Black Sheep on TikTok. And I first came across Mal's content because he had posted something about being a adult evangelical who is in the midst of religious deconstruction. And I know that a lot of my listeners have a lot of interest in understanding how their religion plays a role in who they are today. So I'd like to start by welcoming Mal to the show. And Mal, you don't have a personal experience with infidelity, do you? Hi. No, I don't. But like we, when you first reached out, I was like, I, I don't really know how much light I'll be able to shed. And then we started talking and I was like, I think there might be some some more parallels to deconstructing your faith and maybe infidelity than you might realize if, you, if you're not part of both worlds. Totally. I think that whenever infidelity had made its impression on my life at an early age, there was no open discussion about it, even though we were very much tethered to the religion of choice. And so as I was trying to work that all out in my head, I was like, how does this work? Like, how do you break one of the Ten Commandments and come back from that, you know? And then once I had my own individual experience with infidelity, I was like, oh, shit, like this yeah. impacts it. This has so many crosshairs and when I saw your content, I thought it was really objective and unemotional, and I felt like you were making really solid points. So I wanted to make sure that I gave you a loudspeaker and really made you the uh, influencer that you should be, because it, <laughs> I think that a lot of your thoughts are they're subversive, they're thought-provoking. And just today, I was counseling a young woman inside of the community and she she's struggling. She's grappling with her religion a bit. And she's like, if God was at peace with the relationship, wouldn't it be easier for us to step back and do the right thing? And I said, the right thing is very subjective. So, Mal, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got the name Bible School Black Sheep? Sure. So I grew up Southern Baptist, very influenced by purity culture and all of that. I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, going to a, a rather large Baptist church there. And I ended up going to Pentecostal school, also in the South. And I went there for about a year and then I dropped out because I couldn't, I didn't have the grades and I, I couldn't afford and I was going to play baseball and I got hurt and all that. And, and I ended up joining the Navy and having experience with other people and other traditions and, and other cultures really highlighted in my eyes a lot of the a lot of the incongruities of what I was learning when I went back to the evangelical Pentecostal school that I originally started at. I went mm -hmm. back and first semester I had a class and they were like, This is how you talk to atheists. And I was like, I mean, like people, right? And they're like, No, no, not like people. <laughs> like, oh, that's bullshit. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that people join their religions of choice for the effect of belonging? And uh, what importance does that have for a human? And can they gather it somewhere else? I don't think people necessarily start out, especially not if, if you were raised in it. I don't think you necessarily start out joining to belong. I think the sense of belonging is absolutely what keeps a lot of people engaged in the religious community. 
there's the fear of being ostracized on top of, you know, in the evangelical world, you've got the fear of hell and and all that stuff hanging over your head. But then you also have the fear of uh, being labeled as a sinner or backslider, not good enough, whatever. Your whole social circle, your social identity is tied up into this world and predicated on at least not letting people know that you don't believe the same way that they do. So I think that a lot of people end up staying there because they're too scared to leave their their social network. And I think that the sense of belonging is a crucial part of any social group. And I think that's just as it's just as important within religion as any other kind of social group. And I, with that being said, I do think that people can find it somewhere else if you're not finding it as part of a, a religious community. But I, I think that there's something specific about the religious community that makes you feel like you're not going to be able to find it somewhere else. I think there's the added fear of this is not just a sense of belonging to us. This is a sense of belonging to God. And if you leave us, then you're not going to feel like you belong to God, if you, whatever God you believe in. And I think that a lot of times what ends up happening is people ignore the themselves in that equation. They ignore where maybe the religion isn't serving them the way that they need it to. And it's maybe it's not meeting their needs. Mm-hmm. And you're just, you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to to say, I'm not really getting anything out of the Eucharist or I'm not really getting anything out of worship. That's a deficiency on your part, not on the part of the church, which to me, I think is just so backwards. But yeah, tell me more about that. And this is what we talked before. I think this is one of the one of the ways that it probably mirrors with infidelity. You're taught, especially in the evangelical church, that your religion is a relationship and that this is your first true love. This is your model for love and they're perfect. So if there is a problem, it's you. There's no question. It is you. You are the problem. And I think that a lot of times, if I had to guess, I would say that a lot of people end up staying in bad relationships because of the assumption that there's something that they're not doing. And that's why their needs aren't being met. It's because they're not doing this or they're not doing that. They're not being loving enough. They're not listening enough when they're not being listened to, when they're not being loved. And the religious community basically primes you for not even being allowed to say, hey, this doesn't feel great. So I think that at the end of the day, if you're in a relationship where like you can't talk about where things aren't great, it's a pretty big sign. Whether yeah. or not it's whether or not it's with a, a loved one or with God, if you can't talk about the things that you need, I don't think it's a loving relationship. Yeah. It misses the mark on uh what the purpose of being in a relationship is, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, this is the mark by many moons, actually. (laughs) And I think that you're really hitting on it. I think that, you know, in my religion, I was taught to be selfless. And what I had done was killed the the individual inside of me, basically. Oh, Uh, yeah. Just to make sure that my marriage was intact and was abiding by my religion. Yeah. And it's a a sermon point. Oh, you got to take up your cross. Take up your cross daily. It's Uh like... I don't think that I means what you think it means. I thought that was already done. I yeah. thought somebody already did that. 
Yes. I don't think that means what you think it means. Paul said that. Paul also said not to get married. (laughs) (laughs) The Uh, irony. Oh, but that's when context matters. (laughs) One of the things that I would love for you to pine on is what do you think that the intention and purpose is of a religion and Mm -hmm. how do people individually misuse religion so that it is no longer what it was intended to be? I think the intention or the purpose of religion is in many ways to to find that connection and to find your community and connect with people on a deeper level. But at the end of the day, there's also the spiritual aspect to it. And I think it is supposed to be a connection to things that are deeper than ourselves, whether that is a connection to nature or the universe or the spiritual world, or God, or angels, or demons, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens is it gets misused in a certain way that lends it to abusive relationships, basically. Because at the end of the day, a lot of churches are abusive to their congregation in multiple ways, like spiritually, sexually, sometimes. There's a lot that goes on that people don't talk about. And I think that what happens is it becomes a one-way street and it's all about what you can do for the church, what you can do for the church's message or how you can bring more people in, but it's under the guise of what you can do for God. And you're not even supposed to ask what the church or God can do for you because that's selfish. That's that's being selfish and sinful and that's not supposed to be on your radar, but, but it's weird that The only people who ever tell you that are the people who directly benefit from that. Like churches gaslight you all the time. Churches can gaslight you. Like, no, you're crazy. That's not really happening. That's this, that's whatever. But if you look at it, the people who do that are the ones who directly benefit from you ignoring uh, your own needs and whatever abuse may or may not be happening to you or around you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how a religious upbringing impacts human development. I saw one of your TikToks about the evangelical adolescent who grows up (laughs) and then goes through this stage. And I can't tell you how much that resonated with me because even now, you know, I feel like even starting this podcast is me being a little bit outrageous and blowing up Pandora's box a bit and really being like, what is this shit all about? Really? What is this marriage stuff? So can you touch a little bit on your understanding of the human development and how it's impacted by the religious constructs that we attach ourselves to? So as far as the human development is concerned, most of your brain development, like 80% of it happens between the ages of zero and three. And then by the time you're 25, I think your brain is basically fully developed and it has the tendencies that it has. And uh, it's a whole lot harder to learn and unlearn things between 25 and 35. And then exponentially harder after that. And I think what a religious upbringing, unfortunately, what it ends up doing for a lot of people is instilling this fear of consequences for questioning authority and fear of the unknown, while also demonizing you for asking questions when that's how you learn in the first place. It's ironic that that whenever I would ask a question, 
I would get blown off with the phrase that Jesus said we're supposed to have the faith of a child. It's like, when have you ever in your life come across a child that didn't ask a hundred questions a minute? What are you talking about? The faith of a child is a faith with questions. I don't understand how that gets used against you. So I think that ultimately as an adult, you either get to the point to where you fall back on what's comfortable and it's not necessarily what you ever really believed or bought into, but it was always in the background and now you might have kids of your own and you're scared of them going to hell. And so now you, you buy back in and take it seriously or you maybe you took it seriously the whole time like me, and then you get out and you look around and you go, I don't know if I, I took this so seriously. I took all the teachings and everything so seriously. And I'm looking at the people that are saying that I don't have enough faith. And I don't know if you're taking what the Bible says seriously or not, Mm -hmm. because you're too busy taking it literally or trying to determine when context matters, when context doesn't matter. So I think for a lot of people, if you have a a really evangelical childhood, there's this moment of reckoning in your early adulthood where you either double back and you commit really hard to to your faith or you become okay asking questions that you weren't allowed to ask or maybe you got in trouble for asking and it snowballs into a scenario where like me, I joke around with my wife all the time. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm a 34-year-old teenager. Like I'm getting more tattoos this week. (laughs) I just got my ears pierced and I'm on the internet saying what I actually think. And I didn't think anybody would ever listen. And now I'm getting invited on podcasts and I'm like, man, 16 year old Mal would look at me and be like, what are you even doing? Like taking it, like, I think this is what it looks like to take it seriously and, and, uh, to appreciate yourself and find that middle ground that as an evangelical, you're raised that there is no middle ground, mm-hmm. right? So you're raised ignoring yourself. But to me, that is, that's what happens in my experience. And from what I've seen from friends is you have a rebellious phase where you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I wasn't even allowed to think about this, but now I'm going to sign up for a tarot reading. I'm going to go figure out what all this other stuff is about that I was told was like off limits, off limits to even ask about. You couldn't even admit that you were curious. Like a few years ago, my mom, she found out that I had read the Quran because she said something was in it. And I was like, no, it's not. And she's like, how do you know? Because I read it. She's like, why would you read it to know what's in it? I don't need to know what's in it. What are you talking about? (laughs) So I, and I, I love my mom to death. Like I don't, I think she's ultimately the one who laid the groundwork for me to be Uh, where I am, whether she would appreciate that or not. (laughs) But it's one of those things where it's, I I think we were so busy fearing hell that we didn't learn how to parent ourselves. And that's ultimately what we relearn to do in our thirties or forties or whenever this happens, you learn what you were supposed to learn from your parents when you were learning that you were a sinner that's deserving of hell before you ever did anything. And that's how to process your feelings, how to feel your feelings, how to take care of yourself emotionally, mentally. Hopefully you learned physically, but it might even be that far. You might even have to relearn physically. What do you need to do to take care of yourself? And because the ultimately in my experience, 
But this is not even on the evangelical child's radar. Yeah, no. You're, I think as the evangelical child, you're looking up at all these adults saying, you've got it figured out. And then all of a sudden you get to adulthood and you're like, hey, wait, did you? Did you just right. pass off a bunch of dogma to me to cling to so that I would be a well-behaved individual? Right. Oh, and yeah. like for me, I remember um, there were people that I looked up to and then all of a sudden they're gone. And I'm like, what happened to them? And it's, oh, well, they, they, you know, they cheated on their wife and now they, they moved or went somewhere else or whatever. And it's like, we're not going to talk about it. We're just going to say, oh, they went from being this morally upstanding person to, oh, they lied to everybody and don't even miss them. And it's mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can we talk about this? Can we get some context for how this happens or, or what happens? It's just immediately they were a great person. Oh, no, no, no. They deceived us. I heard somebody once say they said there's only two roles a person can play when you're in a very black and white society. And it's either victim or villain. And you are the only reason that people become the victim is because they don't have the guts to be a villain. And I thought that was such a profound thing where I was like, yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily guts, but at some point, I think when you are attached unhealthily to your religion, you look around and you say, wait, why am I still holding this thing? And yeah. who gave it to me? Yeah. And those questions really sent me into kind of, I'll say a religious deconstruction era where I was like, is, it, is this religion the one that I choose for me? And uh, do I really believe in all of these things that were passed down to me? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about religious deconstruction and what that was like for you, whether you're still in it and what it actually is? Yeah, absolutely. But real quick, while I'm thinking about it, when you said, when you said uh, most people are the victim because they don't have the guts to be the villain, it reminds me of a uh, conversation that I had with my best friend and he struggles with a lot of self-worth issues and he always compared himself to me because his parents compared him to me when I was the good kid. He was the fuck up. And I was like, dude, we're like the same person. He's like, no, we're not, dude. I've done this. I've done that. I've done these drugs. I've, I've done all these things. I'm like, you know what stopped me from doing? Cause I, I wanted to do all those things. I looked up to you for doing things that you wanted to do because I was scared to do all of those things. That's the only thing that kept me from doing them. It's the only thing that kept me from doing them. Mm -hmm. So if you're condemning yourself for even wanting to do those things, I'm still right next to you. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that like evangelical culture, it's even wanting to do those things, even wanting to even finding yourself in a situation where it's, I don't want to be part of this relationship anymore, but I don't want to break it off. Or finding yourself in a situation where you're you're presented with the opportunity to be unfaithful. And I know people that would beat themselves up if they even thought about it. Yeah. Like, like it's not an opportunity, then it is an opportunity. And they say ultimately they say no, but they're still gonna beat themselves up for not for putting themselves in the situation in the first place. It's like yeah, even if you had no control over it. Anyway. So you saying that, like, I definitely identify with that. Um, That's so great. I'm glad to hear that. I don't think that there is only two roles that you play in life. I don't think it's victim or villain. I think it's yeah. human and human. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally yeah. hear you. And you also touched on a very important thing, which was fear enables you not to act. Yeah. 
Like I think that fear is an enabler and it is an enabler to a lot of things. It's an enabler to infidelity. It's an enabler to addiction. And if you're living in fear, then how do we get you out of that place? And I think that's where we can lead into deconstruction, religious deconstruction. What is it? And am I ready to deconstruct religiously and all of that? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So it's become kind of a buzzword as anything that threatens evangelical culture ultimately does. It has been redefined and has become this buzzword and this this boogeyman for evangelicals. But ultimately, to get as broad strokes as you possibly possibly can, I think it was Plato or Socrates or Aristotle, one of those. I always get them confused, but one of them said the it's the, not the unquestioned life, but the un, unevaluated life or something like that is not worth living. And ultimately, it's just that philosophy played out. It's like taking ownership of whatever faith or non-faith that you have and making it yours because you were handed something. And to this point, you may have identified with certain things, but you didn't earn anything. It was just handed to you. And I think faith is earned, not learned. And ultimately, I think that deconstruction is just an honest evaluation of where you stand with this thing that you were handed. So I think that what what happens when you start to deconstruct is there's the there's this fear around it because if you grew up like I did, you were told if you take this whole Bible, if you toss out one verse, you got to toss out the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, if you toss out one word, you got to toss out the whole thing. So a lot of people approach it and approach this evaluation process because I think everybody does it. I think a lot of pro- people approach it with the fear of, well, I don't want to toss out the whole thing. So if I have questions about this thing, I'm not going to move on from this thing until this question is answered. And then ultimately people usually get tired of not having that question and they think they fall back on, oh, I'm the deficient one. And so I just need to pray more, have more faith, whatever cliche, whatever the thought terminating cliche has been thrown at you and just start throwing that, that throwing it at themselves until like subconsciously, they just don't want to think about it anymore. Yeah. I think that often we do stunt ourselves instead of going into the questions that kind of exist inside of our mind. What we do instead is we grab a slogan that Mm -hmm. stops our thought process from going any further. And that's how we stunt ourselves. And then we try to project that belief onto the rest of humanity and we don't realize that we're actually doing humanity a disservice by trying to stunt other people in their own thought processes. Yeah. And it never, even when I was a, a kid, it never made sense to me to argue with people about what the truth was. Cause I'm like, if the truth is true, it's going to withstand any questions. Yeah. You know? Like ultimately I was always told that, Oh, there, there's only one truth and, and Christianity has it. And I'm like, okay, but, if every religion is seeking the truth, then whenever they find it, they will have found what we call Christianity. 
So if there is one truth, every truth seeker is headed the same direction. And if I trust that what I'm heading towards is the truth, then I trust that whoever is seeking truth is headed towards the same thing I am. So then why would I bicker about whether or not they're on the same road as me when they could be headed the same direction? Yeah. Whenever I went into looking at other religions, I found that the commonality among all of them was the important pieces that they all claim to be, which was love yourself and love yeah. others as yourself. But none, not none, but definitely in my Christian upbringing, I think the love yourself was so out of fucking touch because yeah. nobody actually had a sense of self. They were so busy fitting themselves into this dogma that they had unhealthily attached themselves to. At mm-hmm. least that was my experience, you know, it was don't question anything. And here's the thing is, if you're not vocalizing the questions that are inside of your head to the people who love you, and you love them, then do they really know you? Do you really right. know yourself? Right. And they're still there. Yeah, they're still there. <laughs> the questions are still there. Yeah. You know, even when I was still pretty conservative, I had this thought that doubt only ever leads to to knowledge. The the doubt becomes dangerous when we leave it alone and it grows. But if we pursue the doubt, we're going to land at a place where we know more than when we had the doubt. Mm-hmm. And it might lead to more different doubts and all those things, but it's still going to produce growth. Yeah. So just to, I want to summarize your thoughts really quick on the whole religious deconstruction Religious deconstruction is an honest examination of your own set of beliefs. Is that what you would surmise it as? Yeah, I would say that with the caveat that you have to be willing to admit when you don't believe something and leave it and let it go. Because if you are honest about where you stand about certain things, but then you aren't honest enough to say, I don't believe it or I don't know then ultimately what you're doing is apologetics, which is dishonest deconstruction. Dishonest deconstruction. I have never heard it paraphrased that way. Dishonest deconstruction. Yeah, because you are arguing in favor of something without asking yourself honestly. You're asking the question with the the presumed answer already in your mind. Yeah, it's it's literally circular logic played out. And I think that's why a lot of people fear deconstruction is because if you're at the point where you're comfortable calling it that, you're probably comfortable being completely honest about whether or not you believe something. And that, the being comfortable is the dangerous thing to the establishment because Being comfortable in your own skin is dangerous to the establishment? Because ultimately, it doesn't matter to them if you have these questions as long as you're showing up and you're participating and you're paying your tithes, they don't care what you actually believe. It's when you start telling other people, ah, I don't know if I believe this. You know what I mean? That's yeah. when other people get more comfortable and that's when the the establishment that they've built kind of crumbles is when you have this community that is comfortable being individuals rather than trying to conform. That's when things start to to crumble for the power structure. And ultimately, that's what Jesus 
preached against was the power structures of the day that were harmful and abusive to people. The individuals, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Whenever I thought about this business venture and I was like, how does this align with my like Christian values, beliefs, skill set, whatever, you know? And all I could think of, I was like, okay, like if Jesus is the individual we are to model ourselves after, this is mm -hmm. also the man who came and comforted and offered compassion to the woman at the well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I feel but you can do that with just about anything, right? You can rationalize and tailor it. But if I'm honest with myself, I just want to get to know these individuals who had a similar experience yeah. than me. Yeah. So it's interesting. I figured I should have assumed that it might come up, but it's interesting that you bring up the woman at the well, because if you notice at the very end, Jesus says, where are your accusers? Right. Oh. And they're gone. He's okay. So then I'm not going to accuse you either. But the point of asking, where are your accusers? Was to highlight that she was accusing herself. Where are your accusers? They're right here. It's you. That's really profound, Mal. A lot of women need to hear that. I think that ultimately, it, that's a universal thing, I think. Humans have this, I don't know if it's a need or, or like a defect, but like we accuse ourselves a lot. We don't give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Even with the narcissistic personality disorder and, and all of that stuff, even the people that you would think don't struggle with lying to themselves and accusing themselves and being super hard on themselves. They do, just not outwardly. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that's why stories like The Woman at the Well really do, regardless of, of whatever message is around it, whatever harmful whatever has been packaged with it. I think that's one of those stories that sticks with people because it's ultimately, there's a part of you that understands. Like in this scenario, there are three potential accusers. There's the public, there's God, and there's yourself. And ultimately, the only one left accusing me is me. I am my own enemy. I am my own greatest enemy, right? Yeah. I am the one who stands in the way most of the time of what I want. That's <laughs> so crazy. I've never even thought about it like that. That's fucking profound, dude. <laughs> and like I, when it comes to religious deconstruction, I, th I think that ultimately it's because I've heard a lot of people talk about, well, what about reconstruction? What about this? I'm like, no, you're thinking of it as, as a process when in reality, it is a not a lifestyle. It is how you do certain things. It's not a thing that you do. It's how you approach things. In my systematic theology class, and this is another thing that people don't realize, day one of systematic theology, they tell you to forget everything. Leave all your preconceived notions, everything you thought you knew about the Bible and theology, leave it at the door. You don't know any of it. We're going to build it back. In certain ways, day one of uh, systematic theology is deconstructing it, taking apart mm -hmm. what you have been given and building the house for yourself. That's the terminology that's used is you're building your own house. And it's like constantly remodeling your house and being honest about, does that work there? Does it not work there? Does something else work there? Should we just knock out the wall completely? What is going on? Because the house is going to be your beliefs, regardless of if they're just pure theology or philosophy or whatever. It's your worldview. And I think a lot of people just aren't honest enough to admit when their faith 
doesn't really jive with their worldview. So I think that religious deconstruction is just a constant way of approaching your religious thoughts or yeah. re religious rationale is is just being honest enough to evaluate it and keep it or, or lose it. Yeah. And I think one of the courageous responses that you have made an option that a lot of people do not consider, which is the response to a question, I don't know yet. That is a very courageous response to some of the questions that these people are asking themselves. They either deny that the question exists or they will feel like they have to be on the right side of mm -hmm. the answer. And mm -hmm. so they force themselves into believing something. And then all of a sudden, when their belief system leaves them out, right? Yeah. It's then they are doing that whole remodeling situation. And it's funny that they think that they have to recreate a belief system. And I'm like, what if it's already like inside of you? What if you are naturally somebody who does love to love other people? And I think a lot of what religion is or what people do is they shirk personal responsibility by saying, my, my religion taught me to do X, Y, and Z. And it's, yeah. well, your religion really isn't responsible for your personal choices. But it's, it's an easy way to deflect and be able to put that responsibility on something else. Yeah. When if you really just you're like, oh, yeah, I'm Christian and I cheated and I did all this other stuff, you're really able to assess your current position in life a bit more honestly and transparently. And it does bring you to a place where you can actually gather the courage that you need to create the life that you actually want. Yeah, it's like uh, we we're talking about fear enabling you, but it's also like it enables you to be dishonest. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, action is honesty. You did this thing because you wanted to, or it's oversimplified, obviously. But at the end of the day, and that's what I told my friend when we were talking about it. It was like, dude, like all of these things that you did that you think make you a bad person, I still, looking back, having not done them, there's still that little part of me that feels dishonest that I never did. Mm-hmm. Because I want like you didn't quench the desire that was naturally there. Yeah. It or, or even curiosity. Not necessarily I know for sure that this is what I want to do, but I don't know for sure it's not. You know? And I think that there's something dishonest about not doing what you want to do. Or or not even bringing it up, not even talking about it. It's if I want a piece of pie and my wife is like, hey, did you want a piece of pie? And I'm like, no, because I don't think I need it. That's still a lie, you know? Yeah. Like I can admit yes. I want to do something and not do it and, you know, like... Still be living dishonestly? I would say admitting that you want to while not doing it is at least a step towards honesty. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, 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 totally. But, like, like, that's the thing. The fear that keeps me from doing it is the same fear that keeps me from admitting that I want to. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's ultimately when people talk about fear within the evangelical church or, or religious deconstruction and stuff like that. I think it's the same thing. It's the, the fear that keeps you from doing it is the fear that keeps you from admitting that you want to. And ultimately, that is dishonest.
I always think about that too, is just because you're talking about something doesn't mean that you're bringing it to life or you're setting it into motion or anything. If anything, right. you're allowing yourself to sort it all out and figure yeah. out what it is that you want to do moving forward. Yeah. It's like when it comes to life decisions, not just infidelity or faithfulness or whatever, but like a lot of life decisions are just too big to to keep it all inside your head and make any sense of it without talking about it with okay. somebody. And if you never talk about it and you never make any sense of it, like ultimately whatever decision you make is you, you weren't really prepared to make that decision. Oh, that's so good. You weren't really prepared to make that decision. A lot of our listeners, and I'm, I'm trying to keep them in mind as we're having this conversation, mm -hmm. a lot of them go into these marriage completely ill-prepared Ill yeah. for what it's like to function as an individual inside of the marriage. And then they berate themselves, yeah. even though they have been encouraged throughout their entire history to go into these marriages really young with mm -hmm. no understanding of what they want to do on the planet. And then they basically shackled themselves to the marriage and to somebody else's opinion of what they should be doing with their own time, which drives me absolutely fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. And this is an old thing, but it's really not. Like part of me wants to say, oh, this is like old, antiquated, outdated ideas of, of fidelity within a marriage, okay. but it's really not. Like my mom tells the story of she was talking to her great grandmother. And she had, they had like 12 kids. Like the, my, my great grandmother told my mom, who was like six at the time, I think, every time he bothered me, I got pregnant. And maybe she was a little older because she was like birth control. It was a, a hot topic. She's like, well, what do y'all do for birth control? And she's like, I sent him to the brothel. Yeah. And you look at it and you're like, okay, that was actually a fairly common practice back in the day. It wasn't the physical nature that was considered sinful. It was the relationship. She also told the story of one of the women showed up with a baby and was like, we want to, we're going to be part of, we're going to be part of the family and he's going to leave you and he's going to take care of me and my kid and blah, blah, blah. And my great grandmother grabbed her by her hair and threw her out the front door. Holy um, shit. Yeah. And so I'm like, how do we, how did we get from that to... To where we are now, I think it, it puts so much unhealthy emphasis on like the confines of a marriage when it comes to physical or any other kind of interaction between people of the opposite sex. Oh, yeah. Mike Pence won't even have a meeting with a woman one on one. Stuff like that. I'm like. You claim this you, is you claim you can't this is old trust school. Yourself yeah, you claim that this is old school Christian values, but it wasn't like in Louis the Fourteenth. He was the head of France. He was the king of France and was appointed by the Pope and all of these things and very Catholic. And if he didn't have a mistress, people were like, "What's wrong? Wow. What's going on?" So his mistress was very well known and like uh, a big part of the society, even to the point where like he had multiple mistresses and nobody batted an eye, but they were still yeah. Christian. And, and then you hit evangelicals. No, that's not how they did things. Sit, Sit down. down. You're also <laughs> like, just nobody asked you. That's not, you can claim that, that history is on your side, but it really isn't. So I don't know what got me off on that tangent, but like, no, it's it, a good one. Religious deconstruction, I think 
also comes with a lot of learning the actual history of your tradition. And ultimately, outside of the evangelical church, it's there's a lot more going on than what we were taught. And the evangelical church is just super young. Like the history of the evangelical church is 150 years old. Wow. So it's not really like you don't really have any claim to historical traditional Christian Christianity or Christian values. Yeah. Their perception's a little skewed, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So I, I think that at the end of the day, like you have this culture that's so hardline that like it it forces people, it backs them into corners. And they can't yeah. even admit, like, I have needs that aren't being met, but I still love this person, maybe. Or maybe I don't anymore, but it doesn't matter because I don't have any options that don't involve being ostracized and basically being kicked out of my community. And mm -hmm. I am terrified of being alone because I have all these doubts that I've been ignoring to fit in with this community. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that in that way, religious deconstruction and infidelity are probably two halves of the same coin, you know? Yes. Like, like they don't always necessarily go hand in hand, but I can really see how it would be a similar process, you know, yeah. that's with it. I think that the experience of infidelity really highlighted how out of balance my personal relationship was not just with other people, but with myself mm -hmm. and being able that once, once everything happened, I was like, you know what, we're stripping this whole thing down and we're going to get down to how do I become human? Yeah, And that's where I really started to deconstruct and be like, look, I'm not going to be obsessed with labels. I really want to understand the purpose and the intention of the time that I have here on earth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to use it wisely. And I don't, and I want to make sure that I'm the one who's responsible for how I spend that time. And once I did that, everything effortlessly flowed into place. I think for a really long time, I was butting up against my own religious construct. And I was trying to get my new lover to fit in. And he was like, the fuck is this? <laughs> I brought him to an evangelical church and they were and I was like, oh, you can wear jeans. And he was like, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> and it was so freaking funny. But now as we finish up this conversation, I think one of the things that I would love to hear you speak to the listeners on before we finish up is for the person who is struggling with the thought of eternal damnation of hell based on, you know, the decisions that they have made in their own life, what would you say to that person? Even if you still believe in hell, which a lot of people who deconstruct don't, even if you still believe in hell, it's not Christian theology to put it on decisions that you've made. Even within the Christian worldview that includes hell, it's not about necessarily this, the decisions that you've made, but how you handle those decisions and where you go from there. And whether or not you admit that something was a mistake and move forward or what, is really the evangelical position, right? I think that a lot of people, they emphasize so much about the evangelical idea of hell that they miss. And this isn't the congregation. I think preachers miss the point where within evangelical theology, there's forgiveness for everything. Everything. Doesn't matter. 
I think if you grew up evangelical and you're you're thinking that certain decisions that you've made are going to send you to hell and you still would consider yourself an evangelical person, I would say that the version of hell that was preached to you is not accurate to the tradition that you belong in of people who still consider themselves to be evangelical Christians. I would say that look at who benefits from you living with this fear because there's it wasn't somebody put it there for a reason and I wouldn't blame your parents necessarily because a lot of times it's like I was talking to my mom recently and I was like as, as traumatic as everybody's childhood is I can't picture a world where being a parent isn't more traumatic or e equally as traumatic at least especially if you do believe that your children might be tortured for eternity based on what you teach them. I can't imagine the levels of fear. I would say the grace for yourself and grace for your parents is paramount in moving forward. And if you are terrified of going to hell because of certain decisions or, or certain beliefs or, or whatever, I would encourage you to, to look at the history of how the theology of hell even developed and who benefits, basically, who benefits from hell. Who benefits from you believing that you are going to end up in hell? Yeah. 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 Because somebody is benefiting from, from you losing sleep, you being terrified that the rapture is going to happen and that you will miss it. Somebody's benefiting. And I'm not even just talking about like they, they feel power over you. I'm saying like financially, somebody benefits from you believing that the ultimate punishment hangs over your head also like when when it's an institution whose structure is based on breeding that fear into you mm -hmm. that's something mm -hmm. that that you should consider you should really consider it yeah consider the trustworthiness of the source yeah totally like, i had a video where i talked about how like how hard it hit me when i realized that i don't remember learning about hell i was i learned about hell as a eternal conscious torment before I made memories. So if I'm being perfectly honest, there are days that I'm right there with you. But I have to remind myself, somebody benefited from that. Okay. Somebody benefited from the fear that they put in that kid. Financially, somebody benefited from that. Somebody, it wasn't necessarily that, the, that those people reaped those financial rewards, but other institutions reaped those words, rewards. Yeah. And the whole structure, the whole power structure benefited in that from that because I participated. It's not, it wasn't enough that I believed. I participated. I, mm -hmm. I continued it. And I am the reason for other people's religious trauma. And I think that's a lot of people deconstruct up to the point that they feel like they're not responsible for their own trauma. And then they stop just before they recognize like, oh, I'm responsible for other people's trauma too. Because I participated in the system. Mm -hmm. So it's... It's ultimately, it's like half healing if you don't address that as well. And tangents all over the place. But I would say if you are in the grips of fearing that you're going to go to hell, look at the trustworthiness of the source, look at who benefits from it and ask yourself, is there any good that's come from, in your life from being too scared of going to hell to do something? Mm -hmm. Because if we're being honest, no, probably not. 
oh, well, I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't, I didn't have that. And I don't have to deal with the guilt of that. It's okay. But you still feel guilty for watching porn. Yeah. You consider it an addiction and you walk around with the shame of it constantly. That's not a benefit. That's just a different, just a different pain. It's just a different pain and different packaging. Yeah. And ultimately that's, that's part of being human is everybody has it. Everybody walks around with it. And the church, the way that it's structured right now, doesn't let people talk about it. And that is damaging to people. So. Yes, I agree. I think it is incredibly damaging to people that they have something that they want to talk about, but they are not allowed to talk about it. I think that's a... Yeah. Or you can talk about it if you've overcome it. And if you've done this, if you've done that. Uh, Oh, yeah. My youth pastor was one time, like we were we're doing some landscaping and he was like, yeah, it, the pastor, like people shouldn't see the pastor struggle. And I was like, I disagree. I think people need that. I think it would help people to see the pastor as human. He was like, no, what I mean is they shouldn't see struggles that are ongoing. They should only see struggles that have been like that you've overcome. And I was like, but what if you feel like you've overcome it and then you preach the sermon on overcoming porn addiction and then you feel good about yourself and then the next day you watch porn what then yeah yeah can't go backwards can you right so like how about we just let people be people i love that do you feel more like a person now than you did back when you were attached to your religion absolutely yeah 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 how can you describe a little bit of how you feel in your own life with the detaching that you have done so I've been <laughs> diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety. And it was anytime I talked about it, because I, I started talking about it at an early age because I started struggling with it as like a preteen and I didn't have the words. I didn't know what to say, didn't didn't know who to talk to or anything. And, and it got really bad and I was suicidal for a while. And so I knew like, okay, not talking about it, not an option. I can't allow myself to let it get that far. To neglect so I would, yourself that much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I would bring it up to people and I would talk to people, not my parents, because that felt too serious. But <laughs> it was always framed as this deficiency of faith. You need to pray more. You need to do this. You need to do that. Because Christians don't struggle with this. And then, you know, I, on the other hand, I'd also hear sermons about how if you're not depressed about your standing with God, then you're not paying attention. What is happening? Anyway, it's helped me to really get out in front and be more proactive when it comes to my mental health because it's helped me to allow myself to prioritize it because it always felt guilty or it always felt like it was something that I should feel guilty about or feel shameful. Like an, like an admission of fault that you shouldn't have. That and it felt selfish. You know, yeah. it felt selfish to to admit I don't ha- I don't have it. I don't have the capacity to do that right now. You know what I mean? Like I need to take care of myself and that's considered selfish. You should be all about other people, even to the point to where you like you go home and and you don't have guns because you know what you would do with them. Yeah, it's in that way. It's not just allowed me to become more of a person, but it's allowed me to continue to try to be a person. 
because it's nothing feels that final anymore, you know? Um, nothing feels that final anymore. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's allowed me to reevaluate and, and look at my childhood honestly and start to address certain things from my childhood and even revisit ideas that I had as a child that I wasn't allowed to talk about. I had a video about this, but I, when I was a kid, I was like, what if what we consider the soul is all the same entity and we're all the same soul living every life to gain every perspective? And so when we hurt somebody, we're not hurting somebody, we're hurting ourselves. Or we're hurt by somebody, we're hurt by ourselves. In that way, it allows us to be really connected to everybody. But... I was like seven, I think, when I started thinking about that. And I was like, nope, really? can't talk about that. Can't talk about that. Yeah. Seven years old and you were considering it was a weird the kid. school of thought. <laughs> I don't think that's weird. I honestly, I think that's more of a, what's the word? Divine, like divine providence type thing. One of the thoughts that I had for a really long time was that what if my prayers aren't just what I said out loud, but rather the things that I thought inside of my head. Uh -huh. And that was transforming for me because then I was like, oh, is that an admission that there's some there's more inside of me than just the biology that presents itself to the naked eye? Yeah. And I, ultimately, when you look at the Bible, the Bible, there are parts in the Bible that acknowledge the divinity within humanity all over the place, but it doesn't fit the evangelical narrative, narrative? Yeah. to acknowledge that that's not that what the Bible god means is inside of the, you yeah that's not what the bible means when it talks about the image of god what else does it mean <laughs> what else could it mean i don't think we just look like it yeah mal this was certainly a very profound insightful conversation that i was able to have with you out loud i can't wait to hear people's commentary on this episode i think it will be really interesting to hear from the listeners and I hope ultimately what the listeners gather from this is that there is freedom founded in a willingness to be honest with yourself. Yeah. I, I think that's the only place that freedom really is found. Is yeah. Within honesty. Yes. Yes. Totally. Totally. And the fear of you had mentioned there's the Jesus at the whale thing. We'll go back to, yeah. we'll go back to that. And you said like, where are your accusers? And that you're the only one who is sitting there in accusation of yourself that you're a bad person. When truly I think that at everybody's core, you are good. You are good and you are worthy of good things. Yeah. 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 You deserve love. I think that's yeah. such a profound thing that wasn't taught in church. It wasn't taught in church. You were just taught to love others. Oh, it, it, the opposite was taught for me. Growing up Southern Baptist, it's so influenced by Calvinism that it's like, no, 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 you won't, you don't deserve anything. Yeah. Like you exist because God is good and doesn't give you what you deserve. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You and I both have a lot of cringe reactions to some of the Christian rhetoric that is being perpetuated by people. And in no way am I trying to take down the social structure of Christianity or evangelism or anything like that. 
But I do think that anyone who is struggling with infidelity needs to take a beat, sit with it, figure out which ones that you actually believe. Those yeah. those core yeah. belief systems that we have inside of us, they get neglected too often. And we think that we know who we are. Yeah. Until we're in a situation where we don't recognize ourselves. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, thank, Mel. I really yeah, appreciate you being me. here. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for the invite. And we should also tell the listeners that you you have your TikTok page going and you've got a lot of compelling content there that I like to check out so they oh. can find you there. And yeah. is there anything else that we can plug for you? Yeah. I have I started painting recently as a therapeutic thing and I'm running out of wall space. I don't have any, I have prints right now that are available on my Etsy shop, but they're like abstract paintings. Uh, you actually bought one. Um, I did. I'll, hopefully it's good. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's a beautiful abstract painting that I get well, to have in my house. I'm a huge believer that I no longer really tithe. I pour into people that I think are doing something worthy of compensation for their time. If you are the other woman in your relationship and you love this podcast, you would love the Other Women Community. The Other Women Community is a membership program designed to help other women just like you reclaim their relationship with themselves and heal from their affair. We provide a safe and supportive environment for you to open up and talk about your experiences. We give you the tools and resources you need to grow into an authentic, empowered individual. If you're ready to take the next step in your healing journey, head on over to theotherwomanandthewife.com backslash community to learn more about the membership and all it has to offer. 